0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming health tech. From AI to robotics and beyond, we're reinventing what's possible, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura aarons and this is The Anxious Achiever, we look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope work will change in the future. Today's guest is Nancy Kane, the historian and professor at Harvard Business School, I was excited to speak with her because of her work on everyone from Abraham Lincoln to John Lewis to Winston Churchill, the greatest leaders of our time, and the lessons she draws out of them, not just about their success, but how they led through crisis, through anxiety, through depression, and through despair. Kane has had her own ups and downs in life, which we'll get to, but she offers up valuable lessons in how these leaders push through their mental struggles to achieve greatness. She's the author of many books, including Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. Here's our conversation. Let's talk about mental health, even if it wasn't called mental health, and how it affects or has affected some of our greatest leaders in their toughest moments. I mean, It feels like the idea that we sort of bring our issues to work is a pretty modern concept. Like, I'm still fighting people to be open about it. A lot of people don't want to talk about it. You've studied a lot of really incredible leaders through time. What's your sense of how many of them have dealt with anxiety and depression, even if it was called something else at the time? Uh,
1: The vast majority. You know, I'm not a clinician, so I can't speak to the degree of severity, for example, of depression in you know folks as diverse as Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King or Winston Churchill or Sojourner Truth or mm. all kinds of folks. You know, Diane Nash. These are people who took on. Uh, she was a civil rights activist. still so still alive, still extraordinarily articulate and mm. courageous. These were all people who took on big. Important problems, and they faced great obstacles. In some cases, obstacles that were, you know, very serious threats to their physical safety or life. And so, when you're in that kind of situation, and your mission is very, very big, and rocks the boat as you try and push the boulder of goodness forward, and or you know you suffer from or have suffered from today we would call clinical depression, then you you have to find ways. To keep on recovering and moving through, you know, what Virginia Woolf called in the case of depression, the the cotton wool that envelops you in that kind Mm. of state or that kind of, that kind of place. And so, so one of the really interesting pieces of the work I do, which is all about how do leaders work from within, lead themselves in order to create worthy, positive impact in the world is this exact issue is how did they navigate through their own fog and fear and uncertainty and confusion? And I say with all honesty and 25 years of research, all great leaders have to deal with a real variant or a real important aspect of their own fear, or confusion, and often just you know
0: borderline despair hmm. do you feel like there are certain yin and yang personality traits though that help these leaders like yes they may be subject to big feelings to anxiety depression but they also may have empathy on the other side like are there are there traits that you've seen that come together but that might include mental illness as part of it so The foundation
1: stone of my work is that great, courageous leaders of all shapes and sizes, of all, you know, from all walks of life, of all different colors and personality types and religions and sexual orientations, that great leaders, that they're made. They're largely made, right? Mm -hmm. And that one of the most important aspects of that making, it's not that nature doesn't matter. It's that nature is only a sit if you will, or a fifth of the recipe of the making of great leaders, they recognize that that is part of their calling. Whether they're initially called to it because they're chasing fame or some more narcissistic objective, doesn't matter. The really great ones transition into Mm -hmm. some sense of, I have real influence, now what am I going to do that's really worthy? And not just for myself and my resume and my bucket list. What am I going to do that's truly worthy and and of service? And from that vantage point, even if they haven't yet crossed the bridge from I to we or I to thou or I to service, they recognize that one of the critical things they they have to do is to navigate through the valleys. Mm. And, and those include a lot of personal valleys. You know, Lincoln, who who probably today would be diagnosed with clinical depression, which may very much have had its origins in this, you know, very sudden death of his mother when he was just a little boy, he was nine, right? Lincoln came to recognize what he called the moments of the hypo arriving. Hypo was the word he used for depression. And he developed Not in a kind of spreadsheet or plan kind of way, more in an improvisational forcing mechanism kind of way. He developed ways of dealing with it, including, you know, who are the people in my support system, right? How do I keep the razors away from you when he got very, very, very despairing? Mm -hmm. What do I do to pick myself up and go out into the world and take a step away from the chasm of giving up? And over the years, he actually gets extremely adept at navigating himself, not completely alone, no one does it alone, but knowing what he needed to do in these valleys and how to, in some cases, avoid the deepest valleys at the edge of the cliff and take a baby step away. So I think the most important attribute, if you will, Maura, in terms of great leaders dealing with their own anxiety, depression, confusion, disillusionment, giving up, Mm -hmm. is this aspect of, I'm going to work on myself. And part of that work on myself includes navigating through the
0: storms of my emotional being. You know, great leaders know themselves.
1: Here, here.
0: Right? And one of the themes of this show is, if you have mental illness, if you have anxiety, if you have depression, whatever, it doesn't mean you can't be a leader. But you need to understand yourself and how this shows up for you. Completely.
1: Here's another example of what you're saying. So Ernest Shackleton, whom some of your listeners may know, maybe most of your listeners, was an an Irish-born explorer who became quite famous at the beginning of the 20th century in what is often called the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. And he's actually most famous for a big failure for an expedition that began in 1914 and didn't end until the end of 1916 in which his ship down near the coast of Antarctica was trapped like a vice in ice packs and then eventually crushed. And he had to get all his men, 27 other people, home safely without, you know, they didn't have ways, they didn't have, you know, GPS, <laughs> they didn't have instant messaging, no Facebook posts, right? Nothing like that. And so one of the most interesting things about Shackleton is he, he knows himself. He knows when he's really, really uncertain and, and and just just really wants to give up.
0: And giving up means death, right? At that giving
1: point. up means death for him and 27 other men, right? He's like the person, he's like the lifeline for these men, not only in terms of, you know, how are we going to feed people, kill seals, kill penguins, breach in the canned goods we still have left from the ship, but also really critically, and this is back to knowing yourself, how am I going to help lead the morale of the men? Mm -hmm. So his self-awareness, this is true for Lincoln and his empathy, comes partly from knowing himself and then being able to relate to what he thinks he's observing and he can, he can sense empathically his men are going through. Mm -hmm. So, so one of the things he learns to do for himself so that he can walk out of his tent after the ship sinks or in, they're in tents on an iceberg. So he can walk out of his tent with his shoulders back and right, radiating, you know, a kind of can-do energy because followers, teams pick up on their leader's energy is to write, just to jot a few lines in his diary. It's almost as if his diary is like a counselor, right? He can release some of his uncertainty or some of his confusion or some of his hopelessness, which he has, as all leaders do in difficult situations at moments, without acting out on it in a way that's destructive to his men or his mission to bring them all home alive. Here's just one cryptic entry in his diary at one of the very low points of the expedition in early 1916 when they're mm-hmm. still on the ice. They've been on the ice for over a year and he writes put footstep of courage into stir up of patience. So so what's he doing there? He's coaching himself. Yeah. Right? He's he knows himself and he's talking to himself, which all leaders have to do as well. You can't wait for, you know, a coach or a, a deity or Gandalf from Lord of the Rings to arrive with their white wand. You have to figure out some of this from, from
0: self-knowledge and coach yourself forward. Hmm. What about the ability to take risks? I mean, I, I think that another thing these leaders have in common is that they took risks and do you think that they're more able to calculate the consequences like that self-knowledge plays into the ability to decide what risk is worth taking and what isn't?
1: I think it does, but let me just let me just add an adjective to the risk-taking. Okay. I think great leaders take calculated risks. Mm-hmm. I don't think Lincoln or Martin Luther King or you know, uh, Catherine Graham, when she was leading the post, a very diffident, initially diffident, shy, and reluctant leader. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of those people, right, threw the dice and said, let's see what happens in the pursuit of a worthy end. Right. They calculated, they estimated, they considered the costs, both tangibly and intangibly on aspects like energy, morale, the team cohesion. All of that, the reputation of the paper in the case of Graham with Watergate and the Pentagon Papers publication in the early 70s, all of that. And they calculate the risk, and then they decide to move forward from that calculating and deft place. And some of what they know about risk, some of the calculation, is greatly enriched, to your point, Mara, by self-knowledge.
0: Yeah. But it's funny, I just got asked this question. And it ties into this, which is it was a leader of a department in the federal government. And she said, how do I encourage my own employees sort of taking advantage of flexibility and what they need at work without it crushing my own personal boundaries? And my question for you in this framework is, did these leaders, when they're taking calculated risks, when they're taking into consideration everyone else, also take into consideration the impact on their own mental health.
1: Yes. I don't think it's, it's a kind of process that we could chart, you know, kind of vector by vector in terms yeah. of reconstructing their emotions and their thoughts, but absolutely they did. And what I have learned studying leaders like Lincoln Shackleton, John Lewis, who I'm writing a case about at Harvard Business School right now, they discover how to use distance the distance, both to increase distance when they need to between themselves and the people they're responsible for. Because if everyone believes the leader is just like they and, you know, and right next to them, you know, kind of locked in mono a mono or arm and arm, if they're just like I am, why should I follow this person? So distance right. is important for leaders. At the same time, you can shrink it when you need to. Right? With malice toward none, with charity toward all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on. So there's Lincoln literally, you know, narrowing the distance and talking about we at the same time, right? He was very careful to be the president with his cabinet, with, with his generals, and he learned how to do that. This, this piece of distance that's so important, this use of distance. It's like learning to drive a stick shift car that has a very sensitive clutch. You learn how to do it. It's ultimately an act of empathy, self-knowledge, and deftness. And it's very, very important because a leader can't be wide open. The doctor is in most of the time. Which is all about protecting their personal boundaries, too. Absolutely. Part- personal boundaries because for two reasons. One, because their authority partly rests on those boundaries. And two, because they know. I mean, mm. Lincoln's secretaries, these two young men that were so close to him in the White House that had come with him from Illinois, Nicole, two Johns, John Nicolay and John Hay, used to take him away at times from the letters that parents of dead soldiers wrote him because they were trying to protect him from the outpouring of emotion and sympathy. And in Lincoln's case, guilt for the, mm. for the extraordinary human costs of prosecuting the Civil War. Wow. So leaders have to be their, leaders are their own best, if you will, stewards in this regard. But most leaders I know also, also had folks that looked out for them. Rachel Carson, who wrote Silent Spring, a book published in 1962 that just ask any major You know, environmentalists say from Al Gore to Bill McKibben and and on Greta Thunberg, who they most admire. They'll all say Rachel Carson because her book almost single-handedly created the modern environmental movement. And she had a good friend, a female friend, a a married woman who protected her at various moments from all kinds of aspects of the work she was uncovering as she was looking at the very harmful effects broad-ranging harmful effects of pesticides in the early 1960s, and she had to do it because Rachel couldn't always do it well enough to to keep her own resolve and strength Mm -hmm. and core right ready to do the
0: work she needed to do as she advanced on her mission. So she knew that she needed someone to help protect her so she could do her best work. Absolutely. Learn more at tiaa.org backslash promises pay off. I want to talk about Lincoln for a minute. A quote that stuck out to me from you was that as a depressive or melancholy person, it helped him learn how to accept criticism and feedback. What lessons can we learn there? That's a great question. Lincoln's long time law partner, just to take the first part of the question,
1: yeah. whose name was William Herndon, and who after Lincoln died, you know, was kind of the target of all kinds of historians and biographers and everyone wanting more knowledge about the slain president, once said that Lincoln's melancholy, you know, seemed to drop from him as he walked. So that just says something about the moments that people who knew him well, right, observed when he was battling the hypo, as he called it. You know, I think one of the things that Lincoln did that was really important was he understood when these moments came upon him. He understood that he, he really needed, and again, he got better and better and better resilience including our ability to recover and keep on navigating through a thick bog or a big storm emotionally, right, is a muscle. We we access it mm-hmm. and then it gets stronger every time we use it. And this is really true of Lincoln. So he kept on understanding better how to navigate through these these very thick fogs of depression and and in some cases despair. And I think one of the things that he learned really early on was there are people that will help me with this. Mm. And I can't do it alone. And he got better and better and better at kind of thinking, who are the people that can help me here and how to bring them in? And that was true all
0: the way to the White House, all the way through the White House and his moments of great doubt during the Civil War. I was just going to say that when I was reading Fortune Crisis and I was reading about him, I did have this sense that even though he was, he may have been a sort of introverted person, that he, he had a sense always of, building a team around yeah. him yeah. from a very young age when he first arrived in Illinois and, and kept people close.
1: So that's, again, another really insightful observation about Lincoln. And here's just to add a little bit of color on that. He was canny about it. Hmm. And he was circumspect because he was an introvert more. So, and he got very, very good at making people, stay with me, this is canny, hmm. right? It's calculating. He got very good at who will help me with this? And how do I, how do I make sure they know they're part of my circle? Mm. But here's the interesting thing. He didn't, for most of those people, with a few exceptions, and I'll say something about that in a second, he wasn't intimately involved with these people. So they considered Lincoln a friend, an inspiration, a man on the rise, uh, when he was president, you know, a man of, of real integrity and strength. But he didn't feel an obligation to be intimate with them in turn. So the people he is intimate with or his wife until the grief of losing her second son in 1862 Willie really kind of tears her apart yeah. and she isn't so she isn't so able to support him on all these other fronts. His wife, one or two very close friends and after he gets to the White House uh, his secretaries, these two 20-something men that were so supportive of him and such confidants. And then last but not least, and somewhat unsurprisingly, are these two members of his cabinet, the Secretary of State, William Seward, and the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, both of whom, by the way, thought Lincoln was utterly and completely inadequate and <sighs> unprepared for the job when they first met him. They were just, they were just, thought he was ridiculous. And they came Steadily and then increase with increasing speed to think this is someone who's making himself into something amazing. And so they became people that were close to him. Stanton, his secretary of war reportedly, reputedly. I don't have any evidence on this. It's good enough for me to publish it. Sat up with him a few nights in the White House when he, when Stanton and others were worried about Lincoln possibly taking his life. Wow. So it was—it was again an act of deafness, and it wasn't Machiavellian. He respects these people. He treats everyone with respect and an old-fashioned kind of courtesy, even in the 1850s and 60s. It was uh, people described him as awkward and dignified and gentlemanly. Awkward, (laughs) meaning because he was so tall and gawky, and never well dressed until he came to the presidency. And Brooks Brothers started dressing him. So it was never moving people around as chess pieces on a board. It's these people are part of my team, broadly defined,
0: and they they can understand how to help me when I need it. Yes. You said that Lincoln was a great student of quote, what can I do better next time? Yeah. And it strikes me that if he was if he was open enough to have people watch him while he was having suicidal ideation, he was open to criticism too. Yeah, and that actually connects this with you know, the last part of your last question, which is I think
1: all of the people that I and I didn't—I really thought about it quite like this, but maybe it's really an important defining criterion for me in choosing people. Like it's true of John Lewis, for example. Each of the people I end up really feeling compelled by, as a, as a student or storyteller of their lives, are people who refuse to take the road to bitterness and and, and lasting anger when mm. they experience great disappointment. Mm. Right, they they refuse. Somehow they find this is very Oprah, by the way. Right, this is t- Oprah is totally about a calamity or or, or adversity is just a reason to to get better. It's just a it's just a, a forcing mechanism to get better. Oprah taught me that many many years ago when I started several years of honest terribleness in my life with death and cancer and a husband leaving and et cetera. And and I was I remember channeling her and thinking I'm not going to get bitter. I don't know how this is going to play out. That I won't be angry, and I won't be bitter, and some I will make something good of myself in all this difficulty. And I think each of the people that I've studied really resolved to do that. And when you do that, when you're in that place, and again, you, you're, you get there more quickly and more comfortably with each successive storm that blows you off your path. When you're in that place, a couple of interesting things happen. First, you start looking around, listening to... You know what people are saying, and you stop taking criticism intently personally, mm. right? and, and somehow as a threat to who you are, or your reason for being, or your core. And and once you do that, then you have this new kind of, you know, just new realm of possibility in front of you, which is freed largely from a sense of great insult or threat, and more like, hmm, that's interesting. How can I use that? <laughs> it's what Eckhart Tolle would call a kind of alchemy, right? You're yeah. transmuting difficulty for yourself. It's a decision we make. This is not unavailable to anyone. It's available to everyone. It's a decision we make and we shake our fists at the sky with God as my witness, I will find a way to get better from this in some means. You know, we literally transmute something really difficult into something
0: that's gold. And th- all of the people I've studied found a way to do this. When I think about it, I mean, this is going to sound a little bit grandiose, but like how Lincoln in particular with his major depressive disorder, right? You know, as someone who has major depressive disorder and has been in those depressive despondent moments, the ability to see further than your own misery. There you go. I've never, I've never been able to do it. I have modern mm. psychopharmacology to think. Yeah. <laughs> And and many of us too. Yeah. I think he developed it. Again,
1: I don't wanna I, I'm really nervous about talking about great leaders as kinda of heaven sent or sprung, yeah. you know, full form off the rib of Zeus. I, I think he developed that. And I think, you know, Lincoln stumbled into his mission. We haven't talked about purpose here or mission. You know, what am I mm. doing here? And it doesn't you know, purpose is not necessarily grand or You know, something that we need to carve into a stone tablet and it changes as we collect mileage on the odometer of our lives. But Lincoln stumbled into the purpose of first saving the Union because he was so interested in high office. And then, you know, when God wants to punish you, he answers your prayers. You're elected president in a four-way contest (laughs) and civil war breaks out. But then in the depths of, you know, Union failures and losses in 1862, He sees this possibility, which has pragmatic and financial and all kinds of pieces to it, of issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. Hmm. And he thinks long and hard before he says anything to anyone about it. He spends a month drafting it in secret at night at the War Department and locking it up in a drawer there. But when he's ready to bring it to his cabinet, and then a month and a half later to promulgate it to the nation, he's found a purpose altogether different, more powerful, much worthier than anything he had contemplated before. And that strengthens his ability, I think, to navigate through some of the real, to see, as you just said, beyond this fog yeah. into something that, that's important, not just for me, but for others, and once we have that connection to others, because, you know, depression can be so isolating. So isolating. Then we can, once we, we can imagine, envision is a better word, the connection to others by issuing the emancipation proclamation.
0: you know, suddenly there's a tiny crack of light through the fog
1: mm.
0: pointing ahead. You were very open about it on on Charlie Rose, actually, which I watched. You said you got sick. Your husband left you. You said you lost all your money. Mm. How did tapping into these leaders personally affect you? So back to Lincoln. So
1: in, in, in about three years in my early 40s, it's just a series of drum beats. My father dropped dead. My mother, who suffered from very debilitating depression, she collapsed A few months later, my husband, to whom I'd been married for 14 years, walked out one night and said, "I don't love you, and I'm going to take your Harvard retirement." Uh, And then, about a year and a half later, I I had my first round. There would be a second, with no risk factors, with breast cancer. And so, I buried myself back to the person we're talking to most about here. I buried myself in Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) I started reading. From a single volume, an edited volume of his writings, I started reading from the back. I couldn't sleep. I was such a mess emotionally. I, that storm interrupted my sleep. So about two a.m., when I woke up, knowing I was, I was that was it for the night. I would start at the back of the volume and start reading, kind of, if you will, backward into time. So I'd start in eighteen sixty-five. And the more I read, these are right, you know, memos and speeches and a lot of letters, a few columns, if you will, for newspapers. The more I read, the more I kept thinking. Oh, my God, Nancy, you think you have problems. (laughs) Oh, my God, look at Mr. Lincoln. And there was something about his ability to persevere Mm. because he's so empathic. This is not someone who didn't feel. Part of the reason we have some of the greatest speeches in the English language from Lincoln, this is true of Churchill as well, who also suffered from great debilitating depression, It is because he's so sensitive and empathic. And they can translate that into emotions and experience, ways of being that we can all relate to. Lincoln really saved me. It, there were a couple other things that saved me too. My dis- Discovering my, a, a real faith in, in goodness and, some, and, some, and animals who have always helped me. But, <laughs> oh, I find animals to be great, great counselors and therapists. And they, they teach you unfailingly about love, about joy, unbidden joy, about loyalty, and about kindness. And so that that combination, but Lincoln is a kind of, you know, just look what he did. Look at how he figured out to nav- how to navigate between public leadership and public decisiveness and public inspiration and commitment in a war that was bloody beyond belief, but how he also is navigating this incredible minefield of his own depression. Mm-hmm. And loss and loss of his and son. And grief. I mean, he re- this, his losing his second son. They had, they had lost a child in Illinois before he came to the White House, mm-hmm. Eddie. And losing the second child, the child with whom he was the closest, was just absolutely racking for Lincoln. He used to walk at night to the cemetery and go into the vault and open the coffin <gasps> to look at Willie. He was. This was. Re- he never ever recovered from that loss. As many of us who've had great grief in our life
0: never will completely recover from the loss of someone that was very dear to us. Of course. I wanna shift gears a little bit. You've written a lot about crisis leadership. Indeed, I think a lot of us first learn about leadership in in crisis. It's the sort of ultimate test of a leader. And I'm curious what what you've seen in all your study about the relationship between anxiety and managing through crisis. Even if someone isn't anxious to begin with, surely in a crisis, anxiety comes in like a flood. But do they channel it? Like, what's the relationship there? So I see it's in all the leaders, hmm.
1: everyone I study, because I stay, the reason I stay people in crisis is not because I have a morbid curiosity. I really don't. <laughs> I really don't. It's because the visible, improvement in leaders and their ability to make themselves better and be made better because there's this interaction between the larger moment and the leader. Right. It, it's almost like a forcing mechanism, like all these older op- kinds of ways of operating fall by the wayside and you have to make it up and make yourself up as you go along. Mm. So what the, one of the really interesting aspects of crisis is that because they're crisis and they're high stakes, leaders find themselves, even if they weren't prone to lots of anxiety, or yeah. even if they hadn't had a lot of it, they find themselves suddenly caught up in the gales of worry and fear, and and in some cases paralysis. And I would say overall that there are a few generalizable rules of the road or tools that I've observed leaders using in regard to their anxiety. One of them is to keep coming back to what am I doing hmm. here? Purpose. Purpose. Purpose is actually like a ballast. And not just for the people that a leader, you know, is responsible for and the enunciation of that purpose. You know, we will fight on the beaches, we will fight with pitchforks. <laughs> we will never surrender. You right? I mean, not just for the followers and the team and the nation. It's also really, really important for the leader. Because I have watched in my own documentation, and in a couple of cases with leaders that are today alive, that are frank enough and trusting enough of me to tell their stories, I've watched how leader after leader always gets to the cliff of giving up. It's usually at night. Oh, you just keep arriving at the cliff at 2 a.m. Oh my God, I can't do this. This is, it's all going the other way. I can't do it anymore, right? I can't, or I don't know what to do, or I'm so scared of what to do. I, I'm, I can't, I can't do anything else. And they get up to the cliff and then, Purpose is often, if I give up here, the whole deal is lost. Or if I give up, the whole enchilada is gone. If I give up, think about the dominoes that fall. That, that ability to connect that moment, connect to purpose in that moment is often something that pulls you back. And usually that purpose, and we can all, I think lots of us can relate to this with our anxiety, is, is all t- bound up with other people's fortunes and fates. Yes. So that when you can connect, I have something to offer other people. And if I stop going, other people lose. Other people suffer. Other people are let down. Other people, right, are, are more vulnerable. That is actually quite fortifying. Fortifying in the sense that it's, it, it fortifies the stronger parts of you. And by doing that, it lowers the fear volume some. Not completely, right? Not completely, but enough that you can go on. Get, go, get up the next morning and go on. <laughs> A second thing that I became conscious of when I was, Putting together uh, an executive session, a coaching session on Nelson Mandela is this wonderful quote from Mandela that Mm -hmm. is, you know, is well used and slightly bastardized, but it doesn't matter because the sentiment is the same, the thrust is the same, which is, courage is not the absence of fear. It's the willingness to walk into the fear and discover that in that doing that, you can begin to triumph over it because of that quote and nelson's experience doing this and his his willingness to talk about this with all kinds of people in his own life both in prison and once he came out of prison and was running for the presidency of the first republic of south africa in 1994 once you start seeing leaders walk into fear just a tiny little baby step not over the cliff but into the fear and then their ability to keep on keeping on to not Give in, give out, give up, in the fear, just that very those very like five, first five steps actually again, dial down the fear because you haven't tried to escape it. You haven't tried to, you know somehow act it out the fear. You're just walking into it. I'm gonna do this. it's really it's it's scary, and I'm going to hold my core tight and put my shoulders back, even though I'm really, really nervous or fearful. And then there's something empowering that happens first from within. That then other people catch on to and follow you behind into the fear that really really is helpful in dialing it down i've talked a little bit about seeking out support and different kinds of affirming people when the anxiety levels climb here's something we haven't spoken about that i think is really really important recovery recovery so we we talk a lot in in my work coaching leaders about you know, you need to feed and water yourself. The, the more the anxiety around you, the more the anxiety in you, the harder what you're trying to do is, and this is true for all people, the more you actually need to put first on the list, put your oxygen mask on first before you help others put theirs on. Mm-hmm. That's the file folder label for, make sure every day, you know, you're sleeping as well as you can, as many hours as you can, and all the little things that go behind this. You're eating pretty well most days, I'm not talking about keto or Scarsdale scale, <laughs> I'm eating. you're moving, Moving, yep. moving, walking, walking, yep. all these different things, right? You're, but, but at the bottom of that list, but absolutely essential, these basic things, right? You're, you're giving yourself device free moments. You're having time to reflect and meet with yourself, like we talked about with Shackleton. But at the essential, these are all essential, is recovery. Now, recovery for Lincoln, for example, meant almost every night, right? after a long day of anxiety at the telegraph office, for example, waiting for battle results to come in over the, over the wires, he would go home and have dinner with friends, trusted friends, and he would tell funny bawdy stories. Lincoln was quite a rancateur. He had no, no compunction huh. about telling dirty, raunchy stories, and he would <laughs> laugh. And, or he would go to the theater and see Shakespeare and he would, he would, he would, his mind and his emotions would for two hours or an hour and a half, right, recover. Like the recover. muscle that you used all day long holding your resilience together or keeping it together for other people or keep, keeping your mind grounded and focused. All that takes work and you need moments where you can have joy and transportation, meaning you're transported from The pace of the day or the, or the demons and, and the real specters, the realistic specters driving the fear. And you're not afraid and the whole system is recovering. This is so essential to the way I have seen leaders manage their anxiety. I, we don't see much written about it. And yet it's absolutely right. A buttress of, of of helping people manage their anxiety.
0: I love that. You're a Harvard Business School professor. You, speak with students and executives and coach leaders. How do you see mental health conversations changing in the business world? Not the press release they put out for Mental Health Month, but like between leaders themselves. Uh, Dramatically is the
1: answer. Really? So I'll just give you one example, a recent example. So I was leading a Zoom webinar among about 65 very high, all CEOs, high-ranking, advertising executives. And they're leading all kinds of different firms. And they, tool one, there were 60 on the call and they're very vocal. They're advertising folks. They're incredibly articulate. They're funny. <laughs> their most, one of their most important tools is their, is their ability to speak and communicate. And tool one, they said that the, that the toolbox that they have to bring to the office and to the conference room and to the board calls is now, 50%, 30 to 50% wider in terms of the tools it has to accommodate. And the bulk of those additions to the toolbox are, are dealing with the mental health of their people and their own mental health. <laughs> because a combination of larger forces, which we don't necessarily have to get into, but as a historian, you know, like my W-2 income is partly dependent on my ability to think <laughs> about these things. A combination of forces, including working from home
0: yep. and
1: just having a whole new experience of people in their lives. As opposed to their work selves, those selves now work home now much more integrated. And, and the, and the incredible anxiety that both COVID and leadership incompetence at dealing with COVID, at knocking it out in the third round and kicking it out of the boxing ring and the, the ways that COVID has, has unleashed new visibility on all kinds of other pressing issues, right? Mm-hmm. All those things have made, made anxiety the new zeitgeist and Ugh. anxiety really non-stop anxiety coming at people and then seeping into them and, and magnified this by three or four if you have tendency to this or you have this in your past or you have experience, you know real experience with with that particular aspect of our mental and emotional health and you have now a whole new actor on the stage that people are willing and interested in in talking about and brainstorming about. So I think, Maura, it's changing dramatically, at least among enlightened leaders. And I count most of the people I've been working with for the last year, not all of them, but 75 to 85% percent—as in that group.
0: Nancy, Nancy Kane, thank you so much. Um, I've, I've learned so much talking to you and I really appreciate your time. It's a great privilege and a pleasure, Maura. That's it for today's show. The Anxious Achiever is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Crinko. Many thanks to all our guests for sharing their stories with us. And thank you to our advertisers for supporting. If you want to share your story about mental health and work, send me a message on LinkedIn. I'll always respond. If you love the show, tell your friends, subscribe or follow us and leave a review. From LinkedIn Presents, this is Maura Aronspey.